The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, what if government provided a basic income to all residents? Something like $1,000 a month. How much could that change inequality and poverty? Sasha Abramsky will report on the experiment in Los Angeles with universal basic income. But first, Kirsten Cinema is up for re-election next year, and she will be challenged by Democrat Ruben Gallego. Steve Phillips will review the situation in a minute. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. We have big news about Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, who quit the Democratic Party in December. She's up for re-election next year. And Ruben Gallego, the popular and progressive congressman from Phoenix, has announced he will challenge her as the Democrat on the ballot. She will be independent unless she drops out. For comment, we turn to Steve Phillips. His new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. He also hosts the podcast Democracy in Color, and he writes for The Nation and The Guardian. We reached him today in Washington. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, just to review a little of the history here, Kirsten Sinema declared she was leaving the Democratic Party after a number of votes in the Senate that turned Democrats against her. In 2021, she voted against raising the minimum wage. Then she voted against amending the filibuster rules to pass voting rights legislation. The Arizona Democratic Party went so far as to censure her over her support for the filibuster. And now there's a a poll, a recent poll from public policy polling at the end of December that showed Cinema was with just 13% of the vote in a three-way race with Ruben Gallego and perhaps the most likely Republican, the far right-wing election denier, Carrie Lake. Gallego got 40, the Republican got 41, Cinema got 13, and this was before he announced he would be a candidate. So for starters, who is Ruben Gallego? He's the sitting congressman from Arizona. He's a former uh, state legislator there, served in the Arizona State House. And he's been noted for really being both very progressive and then a very strong and unapologetic ally of the progressive movement and progressive issues. And that's really 
um, the lane and identity that he's carved out for himself over the past decade, basically. He has a great video that he just posted on Twitter, sort of the introducing himself as a Senate candidate that uh, reminds us he comes from a really poor background and he served in the Marine Corps in Iraq in a unit that suffered a huge number of casualties. Yeah, no, he's got really strong community accessible average person bona fides, right? In terms of, you know, coming from a low income background, you know, having, again, having, like you're saying, having served in the military, you know, you would think you would inoculate somebody against some of the attacks from the right, but not necessarily, but it does show that I think it will be something that's appreciated by some sector um, of voters in the middle about somebody who served his country and who risked uh, his life um, for the for the country. Meanwhile, Republicans in Arizona have been running Let's call them crazy election deniers and losing. You want to remind us about that recent history? Right. Well, you're mentioning Carrie Lake, who ran for governor and has uh, lost to Katie Hobbs as an unapologetic election denier around 2020, a strong Trumpite, somebody who never served in public life previously, he had been like a TV broadcaster or person, but has no real political experience. But as Trump showed on the right, that's not required. You know, so ran as a denier about the 2020 election and that alienated people as well as ran and it's kind of inexplicably attacking John McCain in Arizona it was a very beloved Republican in, in Arizona. So she lost the election, which was you know, kind of a surprise you know, to many people somewhat all around, although she has yet to concede that she has <laughs> lost, even though Katie Hobbs is in the governor's mansion as we speak. Yes. So it'd be interesting to see how does she try to pull off running for Senate while claiming that she is actually the current governor um, of Arizona. So but that's reflective of, you know, and then you also had election deniers running for secretary of state and but, attorney general. Yes. Right. And then we bear, then almost they almost got into that. They only lost the Democrat only won by 511 votes for that seat. So there's very much of a of a MAGA, you know, right wing nut job slate of candidates that they fielded in Arizona um, who all came close, but they did not prevail. Meanwhile, over the last couple of years, cinema has steadily lost support among Democrats, while at the same time gaining significant financial backing from private equity. Big donors whose main political goal in life seems to be preserving the carried interest exemption. And to make clear where her uh, uh, allegiances are, last week she went to Davos. You want to tell us that story? Yeah, no, she's very steadily and methodically gravitated. I don't even think it would say to the right, but she gravitated to it's she's gravitated away from her progressive roots and really towards the financial elite, uh, even more so than the right wing per, per se. Right. So she right famously avoided against increasing the minimum wage. And it's like, so what was the upside of that other than to carry the water of the of the corporate sector in that regard. So it's this odd combination, I think, of enhancing her own perceived significance um, by being um, opposed to the key parts of the democratic agenda, but also, as you're saying, really increasingly doing the bidding 
of the very wealthy sector of the of the society, right? Hanging out in Davos with the top billionaires in the world who are coming together and whatnot. And so rubbing shoulders with those people, which is a long way from her original supposed roots. In the Green Party, or certainly was, you know, associated, affiliated with it way back in the day, you know, 15 years ago or so. So, you know, which raises the larger question about what's the, will she just walk away and take a big paycheck? I guess the parallel is, will she continue to get a paycheck or she can't move their legislation? So that remains an open question. And Arizona, as you and I have talked about here before, is in a state of political and demographic transition, a growing Latino population, a dwindling population of older white Republicans. You have a chapter on Arizona in your new book, How We Win the Civil War. Remind us briefly about what's going on in Arizona. Well, first of all, it's, it's, not, it's not irrelevant that Arizona sits on the border of Mexico. You know, I think what gets left out, left out of these conversations about immigration is that Arizona, you know, 150 years ago was part of Mexico. <laughs> and so when we had the, you know, the Mexican-American War and the annexation of the Southwest, so there's a very strong connection between Mexico and Arizona, Mexican-Americans and uh, Mexicans in, in that state. And so that demographic revolution has unfolded over the past 30 years dramatically, and then very much so been brought into the electoral space over the past 10 to 15 years. And then most significantly, there was as a response to the demographic changes, Arizona was the leader in the right in the anti-immigration, anti-immigrant legislation. And so 2010, they had this, you know, very draconian anti-immigrant show me your papers bill, which would empower police to stop pretty much anybody and ask them if they were legitimately citizens. And what the significance of that was beyond the policy of it is there was a spontaneous organic movement arose where you have all of these people became politicized, mainly people of color, mainly women of color and Latinas of, uh, out there who got activated and got organized and got committed to doing civic engagement and political work and have done it for a decade and built a whole array of organizations that have registered hundreds of thousands of people of color. And that's what's changed the composition of the electorate and has brought about the results that have been favorable Democrats in over the past four, four to five years. And in the meantime, the white population of Arizona has declined, I learned from your book, from 78% in 1990 to 54% in 2020. It'll be even less in 2024. But for the Democrats, the big challenge has been turnout, right. especially of Latinos. In 2020, 45% of Latinos cast ballot. 76% of whites cast ballots. Uh, that looks terrible, but in your book, you call it promising. Why? Well, first of all, it's because it's an increase in terms of it was even less prior to uh, 2020, right? So in 2016, just 34% of the uh, Latinos actually turned out to vote. And so going up to 45% was a significant progress. But what it means is that in terms of the non-voting population, that the pool is comprised of a large number of Latinos in particular. And so if we are able to raise the percentage of Latinos who are participating, there were 900,000 Latinos who were eligible and did not vote in 2020. That's a very significant 
um, pool of people to be uh, working in and to be organizing and trying to bring out to, to the to, to the polls. And so it's a very and they tend to vote, you know, certainly majority, if not often, oftentimes two thirds of Latinos vote Democratic. And so that's a very promising area to focus time, energy and effort. And as they've shown that they are able to bring people into the electorate, get them to the polls, get more Latinos um, participating. And the results have impacted the statewide elections from 2018, the Senate races and Secretary of State, 2020, Biden and the U.S. Senate. And then 2022, this, uh, really the whole slate, almost of most of the statewide races. So the challenge for the Democratic Party in Arizona, the challenge for Ruben Gallegos running for Senate now is first to register more Latino voters and then get them to vote. And this is a job not just for the candidate, not just for the party, but for a series of organizations and civic engagement groups that have been fighting the long-term fight, not just a single election or a single candidate, to advance progressive politics in Arizona. And this is really what your book is about and your chapter on Arizona is about. You write there about uh, the key groups, uh, and I want to talk about some of them, the ones that are uh, let's start with Lucha, Living United for Change in Arizona. Tell us about Lucha. It's one of the main commu uh, Latino community-based organizations that came out of the fight against the Show Me Your Papers bill in 2010. And so Alejandro Gomez um, is one of the key leaders of the organization, the executive director. And so she got her start in that fight in 2010 they were they, and there's a very good new york times piece that she wrote a couple years ago talking about about how so many people came to be part of this vigil but then eventually got politicized on top of that and so alejandro's done this amazing job she's one of the top political leaders i would say even in the country in terms of the effectiveness of what they've done and so she's the executive director of lucha it's got broad and deep ties across the state, and they do very strong, really year-round organizing, right? So it's both on issues as well as turning up people for elections in particular, and that she was involved in running, uh, working on a statewide ballot measure. So their organizing work, they identified the you know, economic inequality as a key piece, uh, important issue from people. And they said they were going to do a ballot measure around the minimum wage. And then they were told not to by like a lot of the Democratic consultants and whatnot. But they went ahead and did it. They organized it. And they they passed and won this ballot measure to raise the minimum wage the same year Trump won Arizona in 2016. So Lucha as an organization and Alejandra as uh, the key uh, leader there um, have been real stalwarts in the work that's been happening there over the past decade. And then there's a coalition called One Arizona. Tell us about them. There are two coalitions that are slightly overlapping. So One Arizona is a coalition of the 501c3, um, the nonpartisan groups that are doing the more the generic civic engagement organizing um, work. It's a, almost three dozen organizations now. Um, Lucha is part of it, but there's like a Native American group, and then there's groups in, in these other different parts of the state as well. And then there's also Arizona Wins, which is the 501c4 more advocacy organization that can do more of the partisan type of work. And so again, they divide up the work among themselves. And I, you know, watched this, you know, was involved in this very carefully in 2022. And they it would put out weekly reports around who was taking what legislative district, who was taking what city, who was knocking on doors, and they were tracking the number of doors that were being knocked on, the number of conversations that were being had, and that 
coalition had uh, it knocked on three million doors across the state, had a million conversations with Arizonans and played a key role in turning out um, large numbers of progressive voters that made the difference in almost all of these races. And part of that is another uh, group, smaller group called Case Action Fund, which is a partner of the labor union, Unite Here Local 11, very famous where I come from in Los Angeles, very mm -hmm. active in Arizona, also in the Georgia Senate race. Um, tell us about Case Action. Yeah, so Case has been a key partner as well in that and there are there are a number of places in the country where that community labor partnership has been very critical. I mean, labor is a strong um, backbone to much of the progressive movement. The Arizona Education Association is run by Randy Perez, the executive director, who was a very key leader in fighting the the author of the bill around the Show Me Your Papers in 2010. Randy read, led this effort to recall him. He was the head of the state Senate on the Republican side, and they successfully recalled him. And that was really kind of the breaking the dam, showing that the movement could have an impact. And so he's gone on to play a key role in labor. And so later, labor supporting case, and like you're saying, Los Angeles is probably exhibit A, right, back from the day when the County Federation of Labor in L.A., partnered with then community activist Karen Bass, right, who is now the mayor. Yes. And so it's been a very similar piece in, in Arizona. That case has been, because they've had that labor partnership, it's been able to do a high level of the quantity of the voter contact work and the voter mobilization and, and the across the state, um, really in the over the past six years in particular. So these are the groups that together flip the state, elected President Biden, Senator Mark Kelly, the current governor, secretary of state and, and attorney general. Will they be able to elect Ruben Gallego to replace Kirsten Sinema? That's the big question. Now, kind of the mainstream pundit view of this is, well, the Democrats are going to split over this, and that is the way the Republicans will win. But there's some poll numbers that say that's really not the most likely scenario. Uh, the polls from late December, which is before Gallego announced he was running, show that Sinema is mostly liked only by conservatives now. She has a 43% favorability rating with Trump voters, only 20% with Biden voters. And she doesn't seem to have a real path to victory when she is out of the race. Uh, Gallego leads 48 to 47. So it seems like this is actually a very promising ground for the Democrats to, to move to a progressive leader for Arizona in the Senate to join Mark Kelly. Um, what are your closing thoughts about where we stand on this? Yeah, and I think that that's correct. I think a lot of people were fearful on those. She's going to run as a third party when that split the vote. And that presumed that she had strong Democratic support and she would take it with her. And so that poll shows that she doesn't. There was an October uh, 2022 poll by Civics um, that also showed that she, among all voters, had a 20 percent favorable rating. Um, it's compared to 47% right from Mark Kelly. So this notion that she has that she would be a credible threat is not showing up empirically in the polling data. And then the other piece that people don't fully appreciate is that because we're talking about the demographics, the plain truth of the matter is it matters in Arizona if you have a Latino last name and that people did not grow. So in all of the Democrats won almost all of the different statewide races, right? But the attorney general race, they won just by 511 votes. Uh, Hobbs won by 17,000 for governor. 
Adrian Fontos ran for Secretary of State with his Latino last name and won by 120,000 votes. Yeah. So that's an additional element of what actually makes Gallego a potentially stronger candidate than people fully appreciate. We will be returning to this crucial fight with Steve Phillips. He's the author of How We Win the Civil War and a contributor to The Nation magazine. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What if government provided a basic income to all residents, something like $1,000 a month? How much could that change inequality and poverty? Los Angeles is experimenting with that idea, starting with 3,000 people. Sasha Abramsky followed four of the families in that program for a year. His report is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Sasha's work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone, as well as The Nation. And he's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. John, so good to talk to you again. First, let's start with the idea of universal basic income, UBI. Where does this come from? Is this Karl Marx? So if you go back hundreds of years, there are certainly a radical rabble-rousers like Thomas Paine who are talking about something like a basic income. But more recently, the idea actually transcends ideology. So in the 1960s, you had Martin Luther King advocating a basic income. But then you also had Milton Friedman advocating a basic income. And Friedman, you know, however you sort of shake him out, Friedman is not a grand progressive. Um, you also had Richard Nixon, who at various times in his career embraced the idea of a basic income. 
The concept's pretty simple. The concept's basically that a wealthy country has an awful lot of people who either don't have the skills, don't have the training, or don't have the geographic opportunity to find work. And we as a society have the resources to actually provide a degree of comfort and security. So the idea is that if we choose not to do that, that's a political choice. But if we choose to channel money towards certain people, there's tremendous societal benefits. And how is this different from unemployment compensation or food stamps or uh, rent assistance? It's related to it in the sense that society comes up with various ways of ensuring basic economic dignity and security to people on the margins. Where it differs is that it has no strings attached. So food stamps, for example, are a classic case. They're a great part of the social safety net. I'm a huge fan of the existence of food stamps. They make life better for millions of Americans, but they come with strings attached where you can only buy cold foods in supermarkets that you then have to prepare, which is all well and good unless you have nowhere to prepare that food. So one of the families that I talked to, Kamiko and Vaughan and their five children, they'd temporarily fallen into homelessness um, during the pandemic. They were living out of a car, basically, and then they were put into a um, motel during the pandemic. Well, that was better than being on the streets, but they didn't have a kitchen. So food stamps for them were fairly limited because what they needed was the ability to get pre-made food, go to a supermarket and buy a roast chicken, for example, which is heated and therefore ready to eat. And they couldn't do it with food stamps. You can do that with basic income. The, The premise of basic income is that if you give people money, by and large, they will know fairly wisely how to spend that money. It doesn't mean everybody's going to make perfect choices, but by and large, people know what they need. They know that they need to get school supplies for their kids. They know they need to get food. If their car breaks down, they know they need to have the ability to repair that car so that if they do get a job, they can drive to work. Just basic, basic things like that, which is the wonder of UBI. And this sort of really conservative narrative is if you give poor people money, they're just going to fritter it away. And it's sort of there's a moral jeopardy argument. Well, in fact, what I found was when I interviewed Kimiko and Fawn, they bought food for their kids. So they bought school supplies for the kids. And then they had a little bit left over and they began taking their kids on outings to museums or to the beach or to parks where they had to drive a few miles. And that's, you know, on the one level frivolous. On the other level, it's vital for child's development. So UBI gives people the option for dignity and it gives people the option to really expand the horizons, especially if they're children. I was amazed to learn from your cover story in The Nation that 80 cities are experimenting with UBI right now. It has the wonderful name Big Leap, B-I-G-L-E-A-P, an acronym that stands for what? Well, the big stands for Basic Income Guarantee. The LEAP stands for Los Angeles Economic Assistance Pilot. But the basic premise is that if you give targeted assistance to people in poor neighborhoods, you make it more likely that they're going to get jobs. You make it more likely their kids are going to thrive in schools. You make it more likely that you're going to be able to break things like the um, schools to prison pipeline. All the problems of deeply entrenched poverty, you have a chance of breaking it if you can provide guaranteed income over a prolonged period of time. The real work that you did was not just sort of explaining the logic of this, but exploring in depth the experience of four people over the course of a year, four families, to see how this worked, in what ways didn't it work. 
The first UBI recipient you write about is a woman named Alicia Moore. She's got five kids. She's had some good working class jobs. Most recently, she was a bus driver for the LA Metropolitan Transit Authority. She had begun having children very young and she had struggled economically for all of her life. She'd come from a deeply impoverished background. Her mother, she told me, had become a crack addict in the 1980s and sort of any stability that she had at that point disappeared. And so this was somebody who from day one had faced obstacles and they weren't just economic obstacles. They were psychological obstacles. She had a lot of damage, a lot of trauma because of the way she'd experienced the world as a young person in particular. She did have employment episodically, but she'd struggled to keep the employment. She'd been injured on the job. Things had happened. She'd lost her employment. She'd lost her income and she'd lost her housing. So she was in a very precarious situation at the start of the pandemic. She and her younger children were living with one of her grown up daughters in her grown up daughter's affordable housing home. But it was very crowded. And she had no long-term stability and she had no sort of sense of where her income would emerge from. And she applied for the basic income. And the, the way it worked is you had to apply, you had to show that you were poor and they had way more applicants than they had spaces. So they, if, if you sort of met the criteria, they put you into a lottery system. And if you were chosen, you were one of the lucky winners and you, you got this money for a year. And, you know, her story was complicated because she had all these grand dreams. She was going to save a lot of money. She was going to put it aside to put together a down payment for a house. And over the year, that didn't work out. She didn't manage to save money. She had lots of emergency things happen. She had um, just basic bills that had to be paid. Things happened that made it very hard for her to save. So she is not somebody you can look at and say, all right, at the back end of this program, her life was fundamentally changed. Her, the trajectory of her life was fundamentally changed. But what it did do was it gave her a year of security. This is somebody who very easily could have ended up on the streets or very easily could have ended up in absolute destitution. And instead, she had that modicum of security. She could pay her bills. She could feed her children. She could take them on outings. Every so often, she could buy them presents, just the things that parents like to do for their children. And so her life had improved, but her long-term stability probably hadn't. And that's one of the things that the researchers are looking at. You know, does this fundamentally change the trajectory of people's lives in the long run? Or is it something that's likely to eventually become a sort of souped up better version of the welfare system where it serves as a safety net with dignity for people on the margins? And in Alicia Moore's case, it served more, more in the latter kind of way. And you've already mentioned another woman you wrote about, Kameko Charles. This is the family that was living in their car. The husband needed an immigration lawyer, and this was a big problem. I, I spent a lot of time with them. They were very generous to me. They welcomed me into their house. They were living in, um, I think it was public housing at the time. And I spent a lot of time going with them on outings to the beach with their kids and that sort of thing. Vaughan was a, a car mechanic by training. He was, a, he was a car mechanic from Belize, I believe. And he needed to get his immigration papers in order. And like so many vulnerable immigrants at the bottom, they'd given quite a bit of money to an immigration lawyer who basically had done nothing and vanished. So now they were starting again. So it wasn't that he was sort of hiding from the system. He was trying to get everything organized. But what it meant was that they had very limited access to resources. Health insurance was a big issue. He didn't have health insurance. He couldn't afford to buy new prescription glasses. So he was using these glasses that just didn't work anymore. So one of the things that the basic income, the pilot program gave them was enough money for basic things like he could buy spectacles, which actually worked for him, which had the right prescription lenses. Now, that's huge because, you know, if you can't 
see properly, you can't work. The other thing that was fascinating to me was, and this is you know what the parents told me, was the kids began calming down, that there was so much anger and so much rage because they'd lived this sort of utterly circumscribed life for a few years, couldn't afford to go out, could never afford to go even to McDonald's for a meal, couldn't afford to do basic things. And suddenly their parents were able to take them to the pier so they could teach them how to fish, or they were able to take them on beach outings. And they talked about that they didn't quite manage to save enough, but they talked about taking them to Disneyland, which would have been the first big family trip they'd ever done to an amusement park or anything like that. So they started doing things that expanded the kids' horizons. And there was this enthusiasm. It was really infectious. I mean, I, I loved it. I'd go there and I'd talk with them. And there was just this sort of joie de vivre. They were, they were sort of engaged with the world again after years of not being able to afford to engage. And that is exactly what that kind of program is designed to do. It triggers a whole set of sort of psychological changes that shift the way both the adults and the children engage with the world. But even if they didn't have a savings account with money at the back end, their life expectations and their life journey had changed. And it was just fascinating and wonderful to watch. Then you wrote about a woman named Brittany Frost, 35 years old, mother of an eight-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. She graduated from Cal State Fullerton with degrees in both business management and a minor in public relations, but she had a lot of health problems, which can be extremely debilitating. Brittany Frost was an example of somebody who sort of completely bucked the stereotype. Conservatives love to put out there this idea that sort of there's an undeserving poor, that there are these poor people who just make utterly flawed personal decisions, and, and that's why they're in poverty. And that may be the case with some people. But in Brittany Frost's case, she was playing by the rule book. She had enrolled in CSU Fullerton to study business. She had gotten lots and lots of work. She was doing everything she could to try to save money to keep her kids afloat. And then she was diagnosed with cancer in her 20s. And it threw everything. She didn't have a family that had resources. She was on her own financially. And suddenly she was a young woman trying to raise two kids, trying to go to university with a cancer diagnosis. And her, she spiraled downward economically. So she ended up losing her, her apartment. She ended up having to move in with her grandmother. Things just went terribly wrong economically. And for her, the big leap was an absolute saving grace because it allowed her to get back on her feet. It allowed her to finish her degree. It allowed her to enroll her kids in things like after school football and basketball and gymnastics classes. And suddenly her family was functioning and thriving again. And she managed to get her degree. She has these great plans now to get a master's degree. She's firmly on a trajectory where she's going to end up with employment that's going to provide a decent income. And she'll be able to get a house or a, an apartment for herself and her kids. None of that would have been possible without the big leap. And I asked her at the end of my year with her, I was like, you know, what do you say to people who said, well, you know, why should we give poor people a thousand dollars? And she looked at me and she said, because we need it. You know, we need some <laughs> help feeding our children. She says, nobody says, why do we give middle class families thousands of dollars in tax rebates for mortgages, which we do without thinking about it. But that's sure. a huge subsidy to middle class people. Yet somehow, when we talk about giving a very little amount of money, a thousand dollars a month is hardly going to make somebody rich. When we talk about giving that little amount of money to poor people, suddenly all this conversation of moral hazard kicks in. And Brittany Frost is a classic example of why that actually makes no sense, because that $1,000 in the long run, it's not charity. That is a massive return on an investment. 
you give a small amount of money to Brittany Frost and her family, and you put them on an upward trajectory economically. And she'll be paying taxes, she'll be contributing to society for the rest of her life. Society will gain far more than $12,000 through that intervention. That's the Milton Friedman approach. That's why it's not just sort of people on the left who say this is a good idea. It's why some fairly libertarian conservative economists also love it, because in the end, it does act as a sort of accelerator, helping people back into, well, back up the economic ladder again. And finally, you followed a man you call Julio, 41-year-old from Mexico with a wife and three kids. He had been working for $14 an hour in a textile factory in the LA Garment District, and then the pandemic hit and the factory closed. How did Julio do? Well, you know, he, he, he disappeared in the end. And that happens with some of the participants. At a certain point, he stopped corresponding with the um, city office that was responsible for the program. They couldn't find him. I couldn't locate him. And so he sort of, at a certain point, was no longer part of my story. Again, what was so moving to me when I first met him was he was absolutely on the margins. He had nothing when the pandemic had hit. He didn't qualify for unemployment or anything like that. He ended up selling fruit on the street in downtown L.A., and he would make on a good day 50 or 60 or $70. And he'd work for 12 hours in the largely deserted pandemic era downtown streets. And he said to me, you know, how much stress he was under and how high his blood pressure had gotten and how he couldn't sleep properly. And his wife was in the same situation. And then he said, look, I, I was told to apply for this. I applied for it and they invited me in. I had an interview and I was chosen. And he said, my life had changed. You know, suddenly I could pay my bills and he began being able to pay his rent again. He began being able to buy clothing for his kids. They'd had to scrap everything, any discretionary spending when the pandemic hit had gone. Cell phones had gone, new clothing had gone, just all the basics were being reined in. And so for him, what the big leap meant was dignity. It was a degree of security where the most basic, basic things like paying your rent could be covered for a few months. Now, I don't know the end of his story. Because as I said, he disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know where he is. So there's a, quest there's a question mark there. But the beginning of his story, I do know, the beginning of his story in The Big Leap was transformational. So in the end, do you conclude that $1,000 a month is a pretty good amount? And obviously a year doesn't seem to be enough. Yeah, it's not, it's not a living wage. A living wage in California is... $20, $30 an hour. The minimum wage in California is $15 an hour. So in no way, shape or form does it substitute for a living wage or a living income. What it does do is it provides a no strings attached baseline. So unlike welfare, which is sort of designed to be exclusionary, designed to be humiliating, designed to find ways to say, well, no, you can't do this if you're on the program, you can't live here, you can't buy this. The whole point of a basic income is it basically assumes that the recipients are responsible moral agents. And on that assumption, it says, go and spend the money in the way you need to spend the money and use it to try to right your economic boat. Now, not everybody's going to be able to do that. You know, in Alicia Moore's case, she ended up at the end of the process as economically marginalized as she was at the beginning of the process. So not everybody's going to be able to do it. But... It's a, it's a window into a set of possibilities. And so, yeah, I'm a fan of this. I think that the more cities adopt this, and, you know, it costs LA $30 million. That sounds like a lot of money, but LA's got a multi, multi-billion dollar budget. You know, if cities and states start adopting these at first as a sort of pilot program, and then eventually 
as a part of their expanded safety net, I think it could be transformational. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. It's called The Grand Experiment about universal basic income in Los Angeles. It's my favorite article in The Nation for a long time. You can read it at thenation.com. Sasha, thanks for doing this project and thanks for talking with us today. John, it is always a joy talking with you. Thank you very much. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.